Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our audiobook series on The Formula of Concord, The Solid Declaration. Today, we're going to read in its entirety, probably the biggest article here, Article 7 on the Holy Supper. And I think that the Lutheran divines did a good job of explaining all the circumstances, so I don't really need to sum it up here. Let's just dive right into it. Article 7 of the Solid Declaration, the Holy Supper. It may be that in the opinion of some, an explanation of this article should not be included in this document, in which we intend to deal only with those articles that were in controversy among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. As early as 1530, when the Augsburg Confession was drafted and submitted to the Emperor, the Sacramentarians completely disavowed the Augsburg Confession, withdrew from it, and submitted their own confession. Unfortunately, however, in later years, a number of theologians and others who professed adherence to the Augsburg Confession no longer secretly, but in part openly, approved the sacramentarians' position and against their own consciences sought forcibly to adduce and pervert the Augsburg Confession so as to make it appear to be in full agreement with the teaching of the sacramentarians in this article. Hence we neither could nor should refrain from giving testimony to the divine truth by means of our confession in this document, and from repeating the true intention and the right understanding of the words of Christ and of the Augsburg Confession in this article. With the help of God, we shall do everything we can to preserve it for our descendants also, and faithfully to warn our hearers and other pious Christians against this pernicious error which is altogether contrary to the holy word of God and to the Augsburg Confession, and which has repeatedly been condemned. So, real quick, for a bit of context here, um, there were crypto-Calvinists and uh, crypto-Zwinglians, or who you would call sacramentarians, people who wanted the Lutheran Church to change directions and so they started, well, playing nice and acting like they agreed with everything the Augsburg Confession said. They agreed with Sola Scriptura. They, they would say all these things. And then slowly but surely, they were trying to take control of the Lutheran Church and make it submit to doctrine that was not Lutheran. Kind of like uh, secret agents for John Calvin, so to speak, or secret agents for Zwingli. When they noticed that the Lutherans were just too darn stubborn... Well, the crypto-Calvinists decided to do it um, outside of public debate. Now, Rome did this too, by the way, but Rome, it was less so because they were more willing to just, well, go to war and start killing Lutherans. So, in the face of this, this part, this Article 7 here, is addressing that problem with a solid declaration of what Lutherans believe and what the scripture says concerning the Lord's Supper. So, continuing on, the chief issue between our doctrine and that of the sacramentarians in this article. Some sacramentarians diligently endeavor to employ terminology which is as close as possible to the formulas and speech patterns of the Augsburg Confession and of our churches and confess that in the Holy Supper, the body of Christ is truly received by believers. Yet when we press them to set forth their meaning clearly, honestly, and explicitly, they all declare unanimously that the true essential body and blood of Christ are as far distant from the blessed bread and wine in the supper as the highest heaven is, distant from the earth. For their own words assert, quote, We say that the body and blood of Christ are distant from the signs by as great an interval as the earth is distant from the highest heavens. That's from a Consensus Tigurinus, um, article number 25. Therefore, they understand this presence of the body of Christ not as taking place here on earth, but only in respect to faith, that is, our faith reminded and quickened by the visible signs in the same way as by the preached word, lifts itself up and ascends above all heavens and receives and partakes truly and essentially, but still only spiritually, of the body of Christ, 
which is there in heaven, yes, of Christ himself and all his benefits. For just as the bread and wine are here on earth and not in heaven, so also the body of Christ is now in heaven and not on earth. And consequently, nothing but bread and wine are orally received in the supper. In the beginning, they alleged that the Lord's Supper was only an external sign whereby one can identify Christians, and that nothing more than mere bread and wine, which are only signs of the absent body of Christ, are therein distributed. That's a Zwingliism from his book, uh, Fide Ratio. Uh, when this did not hold water, they confessed that the Lord Christ is truly present in the supper, namely according to the exchange of properties, that is, only according to his divine nature and not with his body and blood. Later, when they were constrained by the words of Christ to confess that the body of Christ is present in the supper, they still did not understand and explain it except as something to be received spiritually, that is, according to its power, operation, and benefits by faith. They say that through the Spirit of Christ, which is everywhere, our bodies, in which the Spirit of Christ dwells here upon earth, are united with the body of Christ, which is in heaven. As a result, many important people were deceived by the noble and plausible words of the sacramentarians when they alleged and boasted that they hold no other opinion than that the Lord Christ is present in his supper truly, essentially, and alive. However, they understand that this is so only according to his divine nature and is not true of his body and blood, which is now in heaven and nowhere else, and that with the bread and wine Christ gives us his true body and blood to eat spiritually by faith but not to receive it orally with the mouth. They understand the words of the supper, this is my body, not strictly, the way the letters sound, but as figurative speech. They interpret to eat Christ's body as no more than to believe. For them, body is the same as a, quote, symbol, that is, a sign or figure of the body of Christ which is not in the communion on earth but only in heaven. They interpret the word is sacramentally or in a figurative manner, so that nobody will imagine that the reality is joined to the symbols in such a way that Christ's body is even now present on earth in some invisible and impalpable manner. That is, the body of Christ is sacramentally or symbolically united with the bread in such a way that as certainly as believing and pious Christians eat the bread with their mouths, just so certainly do they partake spiritually by faith, um, also of the body of Christ which is up in heaven. But the teaching that the body of Christ is essentially present here on earth in the Lord's Supper, although invisibly and impalpably, and is orally received with the blessed bread, even by hypocrites or counterfeit Christians, is something that they are accustomed to anathematize and condemn as a horrendous blasphemy. And that's something Calvin said, and also in a consensus triggerinus again. The Augsburg Confession, on the other hand, teaches on the basis of God's word that the true body and blood of Christ are really present in the Holy Supper under the forms of bread and wine and that they are distributed and received. And it condemns the contrary doctrine, that is, the doctrine of the sacramentarians, who at the same time submitted their own confession at Augsburg to the effect that since the body of Christ has ascended into heaven, it is not truly and essentially present here on earth in the sacrament. Dr. Luther clearly presents the same view in the small catechism in the following words. The sacrament of the altar, instituted by Christ himself, is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine given to us Christians to eat and drink. And it is not only set forth still more clearly in the Apology, but it is also supported there with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.16, with a quotation from Cyril as follows. Quote, Article 10 has been accepted, in which we confess that in the Lord's Supper the body and blood of Christ are truly and essentially present, and are truly offered with the visible elements, the bread and the wine, to those who receive the sacrament. If the body of Christ were not truly present, but only the Holy Spirit, then when Paul says the bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ, and so forth, it would follow that the bread is a participation not in the body, but in the Spirit of Christ. 
And we know that not only the Roman, but also the Greek church has taught the bodily presence of Christ in the Holy Communion. Cyril is quoted to the effect that Christ dwells bodily in the supper through the communication of his flesh in us. Later on, those who at Augsburg had submitted their own confession concerning this article adopted the confession of our churches. In 1536, the theologians of Saxony and Upper Germany drafted the following articles of Christian agreement in Wittenberg, and Dr. Martin Luther and other theologians of both parties signed them, quote, we have heard how Master Martin Bucer has explained his opinion and that of the other preachers who came with him from the cities concerning the holy sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. Namely thus, they confess, in accordance with the words of Irenaeus, that there are two things in this sacrament, one heavenly and the other earthly. Therefore they maintain and teach that with the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ are truly and essentially present, distributed, and received. And although they deny a transubstantiation, that is, an essential change of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, and do not believe that the body and blood of Christ are locally enclosed in the bread, or are in some other way permanently united with it apart from the use of the sacrament, they grant that through sacramental union the bread is the body of Christ, etc., for they do not maintain that the body of Christ is present apart from the use, as when the bread is laid aside or reserved in the tabernacle or carried about and exposed in procession, as happens in the papacy. Secondly, they hold that it is the institution of this sacrament, performed by Christ, that makes it valid in Christendom, and that it does not depend on the worthiness or unworthiness of the minister who distributes the sacrament or of him who receives it, since, as St. Paul says, the unworthy receive the sacrament too. Therefore, they hold that where Christ's institution and command are observed, the body and blood of Christ are truly distributed to the unworthy too, and that they truly receive it. But they receive it for judgment, as St. Paul says, for they misuse the holy sacrament since they receive it without true repentance and without faith. For it was instituted to testify that those who truly repent and comfort themselves through faith in Christ there receive the grace and merits of Christ, are incorporated into Christ, and are washed by the blood of Christ. In the following year, the leading theologians who were committed to the Augsburg Confession assembled from all parts of Germany and Schmalkald to consider what kind of doctrinal statement they should submit to the council. By common consent, Dr. Luther dra drafted the Schmalkald Articles, which all the theologians collectively and, and individually subscribed. In these, the correct and true meaning is set forth briefly and precisely, in words which agree in the most exact way with the words of Christ. In this way was stopped up every subterfuge and loophole which the sacramentarians had employed to interpret the aforementioned Articles of Agreement, adopted in the previous year to their own advantage, namely that the body of Christ, together with all his benefits, is distributed with the bread in precisely the same way as with the word of the gospel, and that the sacramental union is intended to mean nothing more than the spiritual presence of the body of the Lord Christ through faith. The Schmalkald articles state that, quote, The bread and the wine in the supper are the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, which are given and received not only by godly but also by wicked Christians. Dr. Luther explains and confirms this position at greater length from the word of God in the large catechism, where he writes as follows. What is the sacrament of the altar? Answer. It is the true body and blood of Christ in and under the bread and wine which Christ's word commands us Christians to eat and drink. And shortly thereafter, the word, I say, is what makes this sacrament and so distinguishes it that it is not mere bread and wine but is and is called Christ's body and blood, end quote. And shortly thereafter, quote, you can strengthen your conscience from the word of God and declare, let a hundred thousand devils and all the enthusiasts come along and ask, how can bread and wine be the body and blood of Christ? I know that all the enthusiasts and scholars put together have less wisdom than the divine majesty has in his little finger. Here we have Christ's word. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it all of you, this is the new covenant in my blood, and so forth. We shall abide by these words. 
and look anyone in the eye who thinks that he can correct Christ and change what he has spoken. It is true, indeed, that if you take the word away or look upon the elements without the word, you have nothing but ordinary bread and wine. But if the words remain with the elements, they should and must, then in accordance with the words, it is truly the body and blood of Christ. For it must be as Christ's lips speak and declare, since he cannot lie or deceive. Hence it is easy to answer all kinds of questions which now trouble people, for example, whether even a wicked priest can administer and give the sacrament and like questions. Our conclusion is that even though a rascal receives or gives the sacrament, it is the true sacrament, that is, Christ's body and blood. Just as much as when one does so in the most worthy manner, for the sacrament is not based on the holiness of men, but on the word of God. As little as a saint on earth, or even an angel in heaven can change bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, so little can anyone alter or change the sacrament, even though it is misused. The word by which it has been instituted and has become a sacrament is not rendered false because of an individual person's uh, unbelief. Christ does not say, if you believe and are worthy, you have my body and blood, but take and eat, this is my body and blood. Likewise, he says, do this, namely what I am now doing, instituting, giving you, and commanding you to take. This is as much as to say, whether you are worthy or unworthy, you here have his body and blood by virtue of these words which are added to the bread and wine. Mark this and remember it well. For on these words rest our whole argument and protection, in defense against all errors and deceptions that have so far arisen or yet may arise. So far the quotation from the large catechism, which establishes the true presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper from God's word and confirms that it is to be understood not only with reference to believers and worthy communicants, but also to the unbelieving and unworthy. Since this highly enlightened man, foresaw in the spirit that after his death some would try to make him suspect by giving the impression that he had departed from this doctrine and other Christian articles, he appended the following protestation to his great confession, quote, I see that schisms and errors are increasing proportionately with the passage of time, and there is no end to the rage and fury of Satan. Hence, lest any persons during my lifetime or after my death appeal to me or misuse my writings or to confirm their error, as the sacramentarians and Anabaptists are already beginning to do. I desire with this treatise to confess my faith before God and all the world, point by point. I am determined to abide by it until my death, and so help me God in this faith to depart from this world and to appear before the judgment seat of our Lord Christ. Hence, if anyone shall say after my death, if Dr. Luther were living now, he would teach and hold to this or that article differently, for he did not consider it sufficiently, and so forth, let me not say now, as then, and then as now, that by the grace of God I have most diligently traced all these articles through the scriptures, have examined them again and again in the light thereof, and have wanted to defend all of them as certainly as I have now defended the sacrament of the altar. I am not drunk or irresponsible. I know what I am saying, and I well realize what this will mean for me before the last judgment, at the coming of the Lord Christ. Let no one make this out to be a joke or idle talk. I am in dead earnest, since by the grace of God I have learned to know a great deal about Satan. If he can twist and pervert the word of God, what will he not be able to do with my or someone else's words? Following this protestation, Luther, of blessed memory, listed among other articles the following. In the same way, I also say and confess that in the sacrament of the altar, the body and blood of Christ are truly eaten and drunk in the bread and wine, though the priests who distribute them or those who receive them do not believe or otherwise misuse the sacrament. It does not rest on man's faith or unbelief, but on the word and ordinance of God, unless they first change God's word and ordinance to misinterpret them as the enemies of the sacrament do at the present time. They indeed have only bread and wine, for they do not also have the word and instituted ordinance of God, but have perverted and changed it according to their own imagination. Dr. Luther, who understood the true intention of the Augsburg Confession better than anyone else, remained by it steadfastly and defended it constantly until he died. 
Shortly before his death, in his last confession, he repeated his faith in this article with great fervor and wrote as follows, quote, I reckon them all as belonging together, that is, the sacramentarians and enthusiasts, for that is what they are also, who will not believe that the Lord's bread in the supper is his true, natural body, which the godless, or Judas, receive orally, as well as St. Peter and all the saints. Whoever, I say, will not believe this, will please let me alone and expect no fellowship from me. This is final. End quote. From these statements, and especially from the exposition of Dr. Luther as the chief teacher of the Augsburg Confession, every intelligent person who loves truth and peace can understand beyond all doubt what the Augsburg Confession's real meaning and intention in this article have always been. In addition to the words of Christ and of St. Paul, the bread in the Lord's Supper is the true body of Christ, or a participation in the body of Christ, as uh, uh, St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. We, at times, also use the formulas under the bread, with the bread, in the bread. We do this to reject the papistic transubstantiation and to indicate the sacramental union between the untransformed substance of the bread and the body of Christ. The scriptures do the same thing when they reproduce and explain the statement, the word became flesh. With such equivalent phrases as, the word dwelt in us, or in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, or God was with him, or God was in Christ, in similar expressions. Uh, we find that with John 1.14, John 1.14 in the Vulgate translation, Colossians 2 verse 9, and uh, Acts 10.38, and 2 Corinthians 5.19. Thus the scriptures explain that the divine essence has not been transformed into the human nature, but that both untransformed natures are personally united. Many prominent ancient teachers like Justin, Cyprian, Augustine, Leo, Galatius, Chrysostom, and others have cited the personal union as an analogy to the words of Christ's testament, This is my body. For as in Christ, two distinct and untransformed natures are indivisibly united. So in the Holy Supper, the two essences, the natural bread and the true natural body of Christ, are present together here on earth in the ordered action of the sacrament. Though the union of the body and blood of Christ with the bread and the wine is not a personal union like that of the two natures in Christ, but a sacramental union, as Dr. Luther and our theologians call it in the above-mentioned Articles of Agreement of 1536 and elsewhere. Thereby, they wished to indicate that even though they also use these different formulas, in the bread, under the bread, with the bread, they still accept the words of Christ in their strict sense and as they read, and they do not consider that in the proposition, that is, the words of Christ's testament, this is my body, we have to do with a figurative predication, but with an unusual one, that is, it is not to be understood as a figurative flowery formula or quibble about words. As Justin says, we receive this not as ordinary bread or an ordinary beverage, but we believe that just as Jesus Christ, our Savior, was incarnate through the word of God and for the sake of our salvation had flesh and blood, so the food blessed by him through the word and prayer is the true flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In both his great confession and especially his last confession concerning the communion, Dr. Luther defended with great zeal and earnestness the formula which Christ employed in the Last Supper. Since Dr. Luther is rightly to be regarded as the most eminent teacher of the churches which adhere to the Augsburg Confession, and as the person whose entire doctrine in sum and content was comprehended in the articles of the aforementioned Augsburg Confession, and delivered to Emperor Charles V, therefore the true meaning and intention of the Augsburg Confession cannot be derived more correctly or better from any other source than from Dr. Luther's doctrinal and polemical writings. Thus the position set forth above rests on a unique, firm, immovable, and indubitable rock of truth in the words of institution recorded in the Holy Word of God, and so understood, taught, and transmitted by the holy evangelists and apostles, 
and by their disciples and hearers in turn. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, concerning whom, as our unique teacher, the earnest command has been given from heaven to all men. Listen to him. He is not a mere man or an angel. He is not only truthful, wise, and mighty, but himself, the eternal truth and wisdom in the Almighty God. He knows very well what and how he must speak, and he is able mightily to accomplish and achieve what he speaks and promises. As he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. And again, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Luke 21:33 and Matthew 28, verse 18. After the Last Supper, as he was about to begin his bitter passion and death for our sin, in this sad last hour of his life, this truthful and almighty Lord, our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, selected his words with great deliberation and care in ordaining and instituting this most venerable sacrament, which was to be observed with great reverence and obedience until the end of the world, in which was to be an abiding memorial of his bitter passion and death, and of all his blessings, a seal of the new covenant, a comfort for all sorrowing hearts, and a true bond and union of Christians with Christ their head, and with one another. Under these circumstances, said of the blessed and proffered bread, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. And concerning the cup or the wine, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. We are therefore bound to interpret and explain these words of the eternal, truthful, and almighty Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, Creator, and Redeemer, not as flowery, figurative, or metaphorical expressions as they appear to our reason, but we must accept them in simple faith and due obedience in their strict and clear sense, just as they read. Nor dare we permit any objection or human contradiction spun out of human reason to turn us away from these words, no matter how appealing our reason may find it. Abraham certainly had sufficient ground for a disputation when he heard God's words about offering up his son, because these words were patently contrary not only to reason and to divine and natural law, but also to the eminent article of faith concerning the promised seed Christ, who is to be born of Isaac. He could have asked if this command was to be understood literally, or if it was to receive a tolerable and loose interpretation. But as on the previous occasion, when Abraham received the promise of the blessed seed of Isaac, although this seemed impossible to his reason, he gave God the honor of truthfulness, and concluded and believed most certainly in his heart that what God promised, he was also able to do. So Abraham understood and believed the words in command of God plainly and simply, as the words read, and committed the entire matter to God's omnipotence and wisdom, knowing that God had many more ways of fulfilling the promises concerning the seed of Isaac than he could comprehend with his blind reason. In the same way, we are to believe in all humility and obedience the explicit, certain, clear, and earnest words and commands of our Creator and Redeemer, without any doubts or arguments as to how it is to be reconciled with our reason or how it is possible. The Lord who has spoken these words is himself infinite wisdom and truth, and can certainly accomplish and bring to pass whatever he promises. All circumstances of the institution of this supper testify that these words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which in themselves are simple, clear, manifest, certain, and indubitable, can and should be understood only in their usual, strict, and commonly accepted meaning. For since Christ gave this command at table and during supper, there can be no doubt that he was speaking of true, natural bread and natural wine, as well as of oral eating and drinking. Hence there can be no metaphor, that is, a change in meaning in the word bread, and though the body of Christ were spiritual bread or a spiritual food for the soul, Christ himself likewise precluded a metonymy, that is a change in meaning, in the word body. He was not speaking of a symbol of his body or of a representation or of his body in a figurative sense or of the virtue of his body and the benefits which he had won for us by the sacrifice of his body. 
he was speaking of his, his true essential body, which he gave into death for us, and of his true essential blood, which was shed for us on the tree of the cross for the forgiveness of sins. There is, of course, no more faithful or trustworthy interpreter of the words of Jesus Christ than the Lord Christ himself, who best understands his words and heart and intention and is best qualified from the standpoint of wisdom and intelligence to explain them. In the institution of his last will and testament and of his abiding covenant in union, he, no, he uses no flowery language, but the most appropriate, simple, indubitable, and clear words, just as he does in all the articles of faith and in the institution of other covenant signs and signs of grace or sacraments, such as circumcision, the many kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament and holy baptism. And so, that no misunderstanding could creep in, he explained things more clearly by adding the words, given for you, shed for you. He let his disciples keep this simple and strict understanding and commanded them to teach all nations to observe all that he had commanded them, that is, the apostles. Therefore, also all three evangelists, Matthew, in ver Matthew 26, 26, Mark, um, ver chapter 14, verse 22, and Luke, chapter 22, verse 19, as well as St. Paul, who received the same information after Christ's ascension, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, unanimously, and with the same words and syllables, repeat these same clear, certain, and truthful words of Christ. This is my body. And apply them in one and the same manner to the blessed and proffered bread without any interpretation and change. There is therefore no doubt that in the other part of the sacrament, the words of Luke and Paul, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Luke 22 verse 20 and 1 Corinthians 11 verse 25 have no other meaning than what the words of St. Matthew and St. Mark give us. This, namely what you are drinking with your mouth from the cup, is my blood of the new covenant, whereby I establish, seal, and confirm with you people this my testament in new covenant, namely the forgiveness of sins. Thus, too, the repetition, confirmation, and exposition of the words of Christ, which St. Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10.16, quote, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? End quote. Are to be regarded diligently and earnestly as a special and manifest testimony to the true and essential presence and distribution of the body and blood of Christ in the communion. From these words we learn clearly that not only the cup which Christ blessed in the Last Supper, and not only the bread which Christ himself broke and distributed, but also that which we break and bless is participation in the body and blood of Christ. So that all who eat this bread and drink this cup truly receive and partake of the true body and blood of Christ. For if the body and blood of Christ were not truly and essentially present, and were received only according to its virtue and operation, then the bread could not be called participation in the body, but in the spirit, the virtue, and the benefits of Christ, and as the Apology argues and concludes. If Paul were speaking only of a spiritual participation in the body of Christ through faith, as the sacramentarians pervert this passage, he would not say that the bread, but that the spirit or faith is participation in the body of Christ. But he says that the bread is participation in the body of Christ, and that means that all who receive the blessed bread also partake of the body of Christ. Therefore, he certainly cannot be speaking of a spiritual eating, but of a sacramental or oral eating of the body of Christ, in which both the godly and the godless participate. As the purpose and context of St. Paul's entire discourse prove, he had in mind those who were eating idol sacrifices and participating in pagan devil worship, and who likewise were going to the table of the Lord and partaking in the body and blood of Christ. He was discoursing them and warning them against receiving the body and blood of Christ to their own judgment and condemnation. Since he said that all who partake of this blessed and broken bread in the supper participate in the body of Christ, St. Paul certainly could not be speaking of a spiritual fellowship with Christ, which uh, no one could misuse and against which no one would be warned. 
Therefore, our reverend, our revered fathers and forebears like Luther and other pure teachers of the Augsburg Confession explain this passage of Paul in words which agree in the best possible way with the words of Christ by saying, The bread which we break is the distributed body of Christ or the common body of Christ distributed among those who receive the broken bread. We shall abide unanimously by this simple and well-founded explanation of the noble testimony in 1 Corinthians 10.16. We are justly astonished that some are so rash that they now cite this passage, which they formerly advanced against the sacramentarians as a basis for their error that in the Lord's Supper the body of Christ is received only spiritually. They write as follows, quote, the bread is participation in the body of Christ, that it is, it is that whereby we have participation in the body of Christ, which is the church. Or it is the means whereby believers are united with Christ, just as the word of the gospel, when it is laid hold on by faith, is a means whereby we are spiritually united with Christ and are incorporated into the body of Christ, which is the church. End quote. But St. Paul teaches expressly that, not only godly, pious, and believing Christians receive the true body and blood of Christ orally in the sacrament, but also the unworthy and godless hypocrites, like Judas and his ilk who have no fellowship with Christ, who come to the Lord's table without true repentance and conversion to God, and who by their unworthy eating and drinking sin grievously against the body and blood of Christ. St. Paul says, who eats the bread or sins? Not uh, who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. First Corinthians eleven verse twenty seven, sins not only against bread and wine, not only against signs and symbols and figures of the body and blood, but becomes guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a person dishonors, abuses, and desecrates him who is there present as certainly as did the Jews when they actually and indeed laid violent hands upon the body of Christ and murdered him. The ancient Christian fathers and teachers of the church have unanimously understood and explained this passage in this way. There is, therefore, a twofold eating of the flesh of Christ. The one is spiritual, of which Christ speaks chiefly in John 6, verses 48 through 58. This occurs in no other way than with the Spirit and faith, in the preaching and contemplation of the gospel, as well as in the Lord's Supper. It is intrinsically useful, salutary, and necessary to salvation for all Christians at all times. Without this spiritual participation, even the sacramental or oral eating in the supper is not only not salutary, but actually pernicious and damning. This spiritual eating, however, is precisely faith. Namely, that we hear, accept with faith, and appropriate to ourselves the word of God in which Christ, true God and man, together with all the benefits that he has acquired for us by giving his body for us into death and by shedding his blood for us, that is to say, the grace of God, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life is presented, and that we rest indomitably with certain trust and confidence on this comforting assurance that we have a gracious God and eternal salvation for the sake of Jesus Christ, and hold to it in all difficulty and temptation. The other eating of the body of Christ is oral or sacramental, when all who eat and drink the blessed bread and wine in the Lord's Supper receive and partake of the true, essential body and blood of Christ orally. Believers receive it as a certain pledge and assurance that their sins are truly forgiven, that Christ dwells and is efficacious in them. Unbelievers receive it orally too, but to their judgment and damnation. This is what Christ's words of institution say when at table and during supper he handed his disciples natural bread and natural wine, which he called his true body and blood, and said therewith, eat and drink. Under the circumstances, this command can only be understood as referring precisely to oral eating and drinking, not, however, in a coarse, carnal, capernaitic manner, but in a supernatural, incomprehensible manner. Uh, by the way, regard, regarding the word capernaitic manner, um, at Capernaum in John chapter 6, uh, the Jews interpreted Christ's words as a purely natural and physical eating of his body. In the 
16th century controversial language, Caperneatic was a growled word that usually implied belief in transubstantiation. Uh, but continuing onward, but Christ adds another command. And in addition to the oral eating, he ordains the spiritual eating when he said, do this in remembrance of me. In these words, he required faith. Hence, in harmony with these words of Christ's institution and St. Paul's exposition of them, all the ancient Christian teachers and the entire Holy Christian Church teach unanimously that the body of Christ is received not only spiritually through faith, which occurs outside of the sacrament too, but also orally, and this by unworthy, unbelieving, false, and wicked Christians as well as by the godly and pious. Since these testimonies are too long to list here, in the interest of desirable brevity, we direct the Christian reader to our more extensive writings. From these, it is evident how unjustly and poisonously the sacramentarian enthusiasts ridicule the Lord Christ. St. Paul and the entire church, when they call oral eating and eating on the part of the unworthy two hairs of a horse's tail and an invention of which even Satan himself would be ashamed. Just as they describe the majesty of Christ as Satan's dung by which the devil amuses himself and deceives men. Uh, by the way, those were used by Theodore Beza and Peter Martyr Vimili. These expressions are so terrible that a pious Christian should be ashamed to translate them. It is essential to explain with great diligence who the unworthy guests at this supper are, namely those who go to the sacrament without true contrition and sorrow for their sins, without true faith, and without a good intention to improve their life, and who by their unworthy oral eating of the body of Christ burden themselves with judgment, that is, temporal and eternal punishment, and profane the body and blood of Christ. True and worthy communicants, on the other hand, are those timid, perturbed Christians, weak in faith, who are heartily terrified because of their many and great sins, who consider themselves unworthy of this noble treasure and the benefits of Christ because of their great impurity, who perceive their weakness in faith, deplore it, and heartily wish that they might serve God with a stronger and more cheerful faith and a purer obedience. This most venerable sacrament was instituted and ordained primarily for communicants like this, as Christ says, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. Likewise, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 12. Uh, likewise, the power of God is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Um, likewise, as for a man who is weak in faith, welcome him, for God has welcomed him. Romans 14, verses 1 and 3. For whoever believes on the Son of God, be his faith strong or weak, has eternal life, according to John 3:16. And worthiness does not consist in the weakness or certainty of faith, be it greater or smaller, but solely in the merits of Christ, of which the distressed father of weak faith, of Mark 9, verse 24, partook no less than Abraham, Paul, and others who had a cheerful and strong faith. Let this suffice concerning the true presence and the twofold participation in the body and blood of Christ, the one through faith spiritually, the other orally, which happens in the case of both the worthy and the unworthy. There has also arisen a misunderstanding and dissensions among some teachers of the Augsburg Confession concerning the consecration and the common rule that there is no sacrament apart from the instituted use. In this question, we have received the following fraternal and unanimous agreement among ourselves. No man's word or work, be it the merit or the speaking of the minister, be it the eating and drinking or of the faith of the communicants, can affect the true presence of the body and blood of Christ in the supper. This is to be ascribed only to the almighty power of God in the word, institution, and ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the truthful and almighty words of Jesus Christ, which he spoke in the first institution, were not only efficacious in the first supper, but they still retain their validity and efficacious power in all places where the supper is observed according to Christ's institution and where his words are used. And the body and blood of Christ 
are truly present, distributed, and received by the virtue and potency of the same words which Christ spoke in the first supper. For wherever we observe his institution and speak his words over the bread and cup and distribute the blessed bread and cup, Christ himself is still active through the spoken words by the virtue of the first institution, which he wants to be repeated. Chrysostom says in his sermon on the Passion, quote, Christ himself prepares this table and blesses it. No human being, but only Christ himself, who was crucified for us, can make of the bread and wine set before us the body and blood of Christ. The words are spoken by the mouth of the priest, but by God's power and grace, through the words that he speaks, this is my body. The elements set before us in the supper are blessed. Just as the words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, were spoken only once, but are ever efficacious in nature and make things grow and multiply. So this word was indeed spoken only once, but it is efficacious until this day. And until his return, it brings it about that his true body and blood are present in the church's supper. And Luther states, quote, This his command and institution can and does bring it about that we do not distribute and receive ordinary bread and wine, but his body and blood. As his words read, this is my body, etc., this is my blood, etc. Thus it is not our word or speaking, but the command and ordinance of Christ, that from the beginning of the first communion until the end of the world, make the bread the body and the wine the blood that are daily distributed through our ministry and office. Again, here too, if I were to say all over the bread there is, this is the body of Christ, nothing would happen. But when we follow his institution and command in the Lord's Supper and say, this is my body, then it is his body, not because of our speaking or of our efficacious word, but because of his command in which he has told us so to speak and to do and has attached his own command and deed to our speaking. In the administration of communion, the words of institution are to be spoken or sung distinctly and clearly before the congregation and are under no circumstance to be omitted. Thereby we render of the hearers in the essence and benefits of this sacrament, the presence of the body and blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and all the benefits which Christ has won for us by his death and the shedding of his blood and which he gives to us in his testament is awakened, strengthened, and confirmed through his word. And thereby the elements of bread and wine are hallowed or blessed in this holy use, so that therewith the body and blood of Christ are distributed to us to eat and to drink. As Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.16, which happens precisely through the repetition and recitation of the words of institution. But this blessing or recitation of Christ's words of institution by itself, if the entire action of the Lord's Supper as Christ ordained it is not observed, if, for instance, the blessed bread is not distributed, received, and taken, but is locked up, offered up, or carried about, does not make a sacrament. But the command of Christ, do this, which comprehends the whole action or administration of this sacrament, namely that in a Christian assembly we take bread and wine, consecrate it, distribute it, receive it, eat and drink it, and therewith proclaim the Lord's death, must be kept integrally and inviolently, just as St. Paul sets the whole action of the breaking of bread or of the distribution and reception before our eyes in 1 Corinthians 10.16. To maintain this true Christian doctrine, concerning the Holy Supper, and to obviate and eliminate many kinds of idolatrous misuse and perversion of this testament, the following useful rule and norm has been derived from the words of institution. Nothing has the character of a sacrament apart from the use instituted by Christ, or apart from the divinely instituted action. That is, if one does not observe Christ's institution as he ordained it, it is not a sacrament. This rule dare not in any way be rejected, but it can and should be profitably urged and retained in the church of God. In this context, use and action does not primarily mean faith, or the oral eating alone, but the entire external and visible action of the supper as ordained by Christ. The consecration or words of institution, the distribution and reception, or the oral eating of the blessed bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ. Apart from this use, it is not to be deemed a sacrament, 
as when in the papistic mass the bread is not distributed but is offered up or locked up or carried about or exposed for adoration just as the baptismal water is no sacrament or baptism if it should be used to consecrate bells or to cure leprosy or is otherwise exposed for adoration it was against such papistic abuses that this rule was first formulated and explained by dr luther we must however also point out that the sacramentarians dishonestly and maliciously pervert this useful and necessary rule and interpret it as referring only to the spiritual and internal use of faith in order to deny the true essential presence and the oral eating of the body of Christ, in which here on earth both the worthy and the unworthy alike participate. This implies that for the unworthy it is no sacrament, and that the reception of the body of Christ takes place only spiritually through faith, or that faith affects the presence of Christ's body in the Holy Supper, and that therefore the unworthy and unbelieving hypocrites do not receive the body of Christ because it is not present to them. It is not our faith which makes the sacrament, but solely the word and institution of our Almighty God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which always remain efficacious in Christendom and which are neither abrogated nor rendered impotent by either the worthiness or unworthiness of the minister or the unbelief of him who receives the sacrament. Just as the gospel is and remains the true gospel even when the godless hearers do not believe it, except that in it, in them it does not affect salvation, so whether those who receive the sacrament believe or do not believe, Christ nonetheless remains truthful in his words when he says, Take, eat, this is my body. This he effects not through our faith, but solely through his omnipotence. It is therefore a pernicious, impudent error when some, by a subtle perversion of this common rule, ascribe to our faith the power to achieve the presence of the body of Christ and to receive it rather than ascribe it to the omnipotence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All the imaginary reasons and futile counter-arguments of the sacramentarians concerning the essential and natural properties of the human body, concerning the ascension of Christ, concerning his withdrawal from this world, and the like have been thoroughly, extensively, and definitively refuted on the basis of God's word by Dr. Luther in his polemical writings against the heavenly prophets, that these words, this is my body, still stand firm, his great and small confessions concerning the Holy Supper, and other writings of his. The spiritualists have advanced no new arguments since his death. We shall therefore, for the sake of desirable brevity, merely refer the Christian reader to these writings and desire to have them considered and appealed to herewith. We shall not, cannot, and should not permit any clever human opinions, no matter what appearance or prestige they may have, to lead us away from the simple, explicit, and clear understanding of Christ's word and testament, to a strange meaning different from the way the letters read. But as stated above, we shall understand and believe them in the simple sense. Our basic arguments, on which we have stood consistently from the outbreak of this controversy, are these, the same ones that Dr. Luther advanced against the sacramentarians at the very beginning in the following words. My grounds on which I rest in this matter are as follows. 1. The first is this article of our faith, that Jesus Christ is essential, natural, true, complete God and man in one person, undivided and inseparable. 2. The second is that the right hand of God is everywhere. 3. The third is that the word of God is not false or deceitful. 4. The fourth is that God has and knows various ways to be present in, in a certain place, not only as the enthusiasts vainly imagine, the one which the philosophers call local or spatial. Furthermore, the one body of Christ has three different modes, or all three modes of being at any given place. One, the comprehensible corporeal mode of, exist, of presence, as when he walked bodily on earth, or invacated or occupied space according to his size. He can still employ this mode of presence when he wills to do so, as he did after his resurrection, and as he will do on the last day. As St. Paul says, this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 15. 
and when Christ who is our life appears, Colossians 3 verse 4. He is not in God or with the Father or in heaven according to this mode as the fanatic spirit dreams, for God is not a corporeal space or place. The passages which the enthusiasts adduce concerning Christ leaving the world and going to the Father speak of this mode of presence. 2. There is, secondly, the incomprehensible spiritual mode of presence according to which he neither occupies nor vacates space but penetrates every creature wherever he wills. To use some imperfect illustrations, my vision penetrates air, light, or water and does not occupy or vacate any space. A musical sound or tone passes through air or water or a board and a wall and neither occupies nor vacates space. Likewise, light and heat go through air, water, glass, or crystal and exist without occupying or vacating space and many more like these. He employed this mode of presence when he left the closed grave and came through locked doors, in the bread and the wine, in the Lord's Supper, and as people believe when he was born of his mother, etc. Third, thirdly, since he is one person with God, the divine heavenly mode, according to which all creatures are indeed much more penetrable and present to him than they are according to the second mode. For if according to the second mode he can be present in and with creatures in such a way that they do not feel, touch, measure, or comprehend him, how much more marvelously will he be present in all creatures according to this exalted third mode, where they cannot measure or comprehend him, but where he has them present to himself, measures and comprehends them. You must posit this essence of Christ, since he is one in person with God, very far beyond creatures as far as God transcends them. And you must posit it again as deep and as near in all creatures as God is imminent in them, for he is one indivisible person with God, and wherever God is, he must be also. Likewise, our faith, or otherwise our faith is false. But who can explain this or even conceive how this occurs? We know indeed that he is in God beyond all creatures and is one person with God. But how this happens we do not know. It transcends nature and reason, even the comprehension of all the angels in heaven, and is known only to God. Since this is true, even though unknown to us, we should not give the lie to his words until we know how to prove certainly that the body of Christ cannot, in any circumstances, be where God is and that this mode of being is a fiction. Let the enthusiasts prove it. They will give up. I do not wish to have denied by the foregoing that God may have in no more modes whereby Christ's body can be anywhere. My only purpose was to show what crass fools our enthusiasts are, because they concede only the first, comprehensible mode of presence to the body of Christ, although they are unable to prove that even this mode is contrary to our view. For I do not want to deny in any way that God's power is able to make a body be simultaneously in many places, even in a corporeal and comprehensible manner. For who wants to try to prove that God is unable to do that? Who has seen the limits of his power? The enthusiasts may indeed think that God is unable to do it, but who will believe their speculations? How will they establish that kind of speculation? End quote. So far Luther. These words of Dr. Luther also show clearly in what sense our churches use the word spiritual in this context. To the sacramentarians, the word spiritual means precisely that spiritual communion which is established when in spirit through faith the true believers are incorporated into Christ and become true spiritual members of his body, from the consensus triggerinus. But when Dr. Luther, or we, use the word spiritual in this discussion, we have in mind the spiritual, supernatural, heavenly mode according to which Christ is present in the Holy Supper, not only to work comfort and life in believers, but also to wreak judgment on unbelievers. Thus we reject the Capernaetic conception of a gross, carnal presence which the sacramentarians ascribe to and force upon our churches in spite of our public and oft-repeated testimony to the contrary. In this sense, too, we use the word spiritual when we say that the body and blood of Christ and the Holy Supper are received, eaten, and drunk spiritually, 
For although such eating occurs with the mouth, the mode is spiritual. Thus our faith in this article concerning the true presence of the body and blood of Christ in his holy supper is built upon the truth and omnipotence of the true and eternal God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These arguments are so strong and solid that they will confirm and fortify our faith in all tensions concerning the article. On the other hand, they will overthrow and refute all the counter-arguments and objections of the sacramentarians, no matter how appealing and attractive they may be appearing to reason, and will enable a Christian heart to rely on and trust in them with absolute certainty. Accordingly, we reject and condemn with heart and mouth as false, erroneous, and deceiving every error which is inconsistent with, or opposed and contrary to, the aforementioned doctrine, based as it is on the word of God. First, papistic transubstantiation, when they teach that the consecrated or blessed bread and wine in the Holy Supper completely lose their substance and essence and are converted into the substance of the body and blood of Christ, so that only the mere species of bread and wine or their accidents without a, uh, without a subject remain. Accordingly, they assert that under the species of the bread which they allege has lost its natural substance and is no longer bread, the body of Christ is present even apart from the action of the sacrament. When, for instance, the bread is locked up in the tabernacle or is carried about as a spectacle and for adoration. For nothing can be a sacrament apart from God's command and the ordained use for which it is instituted in the word of God, as was shown above. Secondly, we also reject and condemn all other papistic abuses of this sacrament, such as the abomination of the sacrifice of the Mass for the living and for the dead. Furthermore, that only one species is administered to the laity contrary to the explicit command and institution of Christ, and more. These papistic abuses have been refuted at length in the common confession, or Augsburg Confession, of our churches, the Apology, the Small Called Articles, and other writings of ours on the basis of the Word of God and the testimony of the ancient church. In this document, we have intended to set forth primarily our confession and explanation concerning the true presence of the body and blood of Christ against the sacramentarians, some of whom have had the effrontery to penetrate our churches as adherents of the Augsburg Confession. We shall therefore set forth and recite the errors preeminently of the sacramentarians and thereby forewarn our readers so that they can avoid and shun these. Therefore, we reject and condemn with heart and mouth as false, erroneous, and deceiving all sacramentarians' opinions and doctrines which are inconsistent with, opposed to, or contrary to the doctrine set forth above, based as it is on the word of God. 1. The assertion that the words of institution are not to be simply understood in their strict sense, as they read concerning the true essential presence of the body and blood of Christ in the supper, but through tropes or a figurative interpretation are to be given a different, new, and strange sense. We reject all such sacramentarian opinions and mutually contradictory views, no matter how manifold and various they may be. 2. Likewise, the denial of an oral eating of the body and blood of Christ in the supper, and the contrary teaching that in the supper the body of Christ is partaken of only spiritually through faith, and that in the supper our mouth receives only bread and wine. 3. Likewise, the teaching that bread and wine in the supper are no more than badges whereby Christians recognize one another, or 4. That they are only figures, parables, and types of the far distant body of Christ. For example, just as bread and wine are external food for our body, so the absent body of Christ with its merit is spiritual food for our souls. 5. Or that they are nothing more than symbols and reminders of the absent body of Christ, and that through these signs, as through an external pledge, we are assured that our faith, when it turns away from the supper and rises above all heavens, partakes up there of the body and blood of Christ as truly as in the supper. We receive the external sign with our mouth. Thus the assurance and confirmation of our faith in the supper allegedly take place not through the true present body and blood of Christ distributed to us, but through the external signs. 6. Or that in the supper there is distributed to faith only the virtue, operation, and merit of the far distant body of Christ, 
and that in this way we partake of his absent body. Accordingly, the term sacramental union is to be understood in terms of the relation between the sign and that which is signified. In other words, only as bread and wine have a similarity with the body and blood of Christ. 7. Or that the body and blood of Christ are only received and partaken of through faith spiritually. 8. Likewise, the teaching that because of his bodily ascension to heaven, Christ is so confined and circumscribed by a certain space in heaven that he is neither able nor willing to be truly and essentially present with us in the supper, which is celebrated according to Christ's institution on earth, but that he is as far or as distant from it as heaven and earth are separated from each other. In support of their error, some sacramentarians have deliberately and maliciously falsified the words in Acts 3.21. Christ must take possession of heaven to read, quote, Christ must be received by heaven, and quote, that is, Christ must be uh, taken in, or circumscribed, or comprehended by, or in heaven, that he in no way can or wills to be with us on earth, with his human nature. 9. Likewise, the assertion that Christ could not or would not have promised or have been able to achieve the true essential presence of his body and blood in his supper because the nature and properties of his assumed human nature neither permit nor allow this. 10. Likewise, the doctrine that it is not the words and the omnipotence of Christ, but faith that achieves the presence of the body of Christ in the Holy Supper, whence some omit the words of institution in the administration of the supper. For while we justly criticize and condemn the papistic consecration which ascribes to the word and work of the priest the power allegedly to effect a sacrament, the words of institution cannot and should not in any case be omitted in the administration of the supper, as shown in a previous exposition. 11. Likewise, that according to the words of Christ's institution, believers are not directed to seek the body of Christ in the bread and wine in the supper, but to look away from the bread of the supper, and by their faith to look to that place in heaven where Christ is present with his body, and there to partake of him. 12. We also reject the doctrine that unbelieving, unrepentant, and wicked Christians who only bear the name of Christ but do not have a right, truthful, living, and saving faith receive only bread and wine in the supper and not the body and blood of Christ. There are only two kinds of guests at this heavenly meal, the worthy and the unworthy. Therefore, we reject the making of such a distinction among the unworthy which alleges that godless Epicureans and scoffers at the word of God who are in the external community of the church, receive only bread and wine in the use of the Holy Supper, and not the body and the blood of Christ for their judgment. 13. We also reject the doctrine that worthiness does not consist in true faith alone, but also in man's own preparation. 14. Likewise, the teaching that even true believers who have and retain a true, genuine, living faith but who fail to meet their own self-devised standard of preparation may receive the sacrament for judgment just like unworthy guests. 15. Likewise, the teaching that the elements, the visible forms of the blessed bread and wine, are to be adored. Of course, no one except an Arian heretic can or will deny that Christ himself, true God and man, who is truly and essentially present in the supper when it is rightly used, should be adored in spirit and in truth in all places but especially where his community is assembled. 16. We also reject and condemn all presumptuous, scoffing, and blasphemous questions and expressions which are devised in a coarse, fleshly, Capernaetic way about the supernatural and heavenly mysteries of this supper. Additional antitheses and rejected erroneous views have been criticized and rejected in the foregoing exposition. For the sake of desirable brevity, we have not wanted to repeat them at this point. Whatever additional uh, condemnable opinions or erroneous views there may be can easily be discovered and identified by name from the foregoing exposition, for we reject and condemn everything that is inconsistent with, contrary to, or opposed to the doctrine set forth above, well-founded as it is in God's word. Amen and amen, everybody. That's Article 7. Can't wait to catch y'all next week as we start to go into Article 8 on the person of Christ. Catch you later.